The Map, a podcast about morality and politics, with Michael Bank peterson and Oliver Scott Curry. Well, hello and welcome to The Map, uh, where Michael and I try to figure out what's going on in the world, in the world of morality and politics, by picking each other's brains and occasionally picking the brains of esteemed guests. This week, Trump. What's going on with Trump? Um, what can we say that hasn't been said about Trump before? How can we make sense of this phenomenon? How can we explain him? Um, Michael, let's just start with our general impressions. What do you make of this thing called Trump? So I think uh, Donald Trump is a very interesting uh, case. Uh, so I'm situated in Europe, in Denmark, and there is there are not a lot of Danes who are very fond of uh, Donald Trump. So from that perspective, simply trying to understand what is what is the appeal of Trump? How did he in fact become the president of United States? I think that is extremely interesting. And one of the, for me, uh, sort of core insights uh, on Trump and his appeal uh, comes from a researcher uh, named uh, Jane Goodall, who is world famous for studying chimpanzees. And she made the point that uh, Donald Trump reminds her of uh, chimpanzees and their dominance uh, rituals. And I, th I think that sort of insight holds uh, a key to much of his uh, success. But uh, Oliver, um, what, what is your general impression? Well, I think he is amazing. Uh, I think he is the world's best con man. And he, you know he's managed to con his way into the highest office in the world, being the most, you know, powerful position ever um he's he's brilliant at what he does um as you know as he, as he has proved was you know what all hypotheses can be falsified and we'll see what happens in a few weeks time but he's he's an, an amazing phenomena um he's the best at what he does and it's fascinating to try and unpick what what this is because he seems to short circuit everyone's um, usual ways of opposing things like this. Um, one day, I hope that, or maybe it's been done already, one day I hope that somebody writes uh, an article or a book on the, you know, all the, all the, the biases and heuristics literature, all these um, mental shortcuts and foibles and cognitive illusions and everyone thing that everyone's supposed to um, suffer from. One day, someone, someone, hopefully someone's going to write a book or sort of giving, you know, next to each bias, they're going to get an example of, of, of how Trump hacked it and how, how Trump pressed that button. Um, because I think he, you know, he'd, he'd run the board, he'd have, uh, he'd do very well in illustrating all of these different ways of, um, you know, worming his way into people's psychology. Um, well, on the subject of psychology, that was a good link. Uh, Michael, you're you work on evolutionary approaches to psychology on our on our political instincts and what i've always found fascinating about your work is that it's focused on this idea of ancestral politics that lots of the the, the ways that we think about politics now 
uh, are reflect or are the product of um, evolved instincts for managing social relations and political relations in in smaller traditional uh, societies over over eons. Um, and one thing that uh, I've always thought about the thing that always comes to mind when I think about Trump and the, and the whole setup is um, it's very atavistic. It's very much uh, harking back to some ancient time. Um, uh, and like I said, pressing these political buttons. So I'm very curious, you know, if, so I have this vague idea about what these buttons are, but you're the expert. So which buttons do you think he's pressing? Do you have like a kind of list in mind or some examples? Uh, yeah, I, I do have a, a list in, in in mind, and I I sort of very much agree with with what you are saying that it's extremely important not to underestimate uh, Donald Trump because he seems to have an exceptional understanding of how to tap into particular uh, psychological dispositions in the human mind. I think it's also very important, uh, and and that. Uh, to, to sort of recognize that he's not tapping into all of them. And I don't mm. think that that the book that you suggest should be written, therefore will be written because he's not tapping into all of them. He's p- tapping into a very particular set of psychological dispositions. And from my perspective, it is related uh, to uh, dispositions that evolved over human evolutionary history to deal with intergroup conflict. And what, one of the things that, that I've been studying is what, what happens when you, when you become engaged, when your group becomes engaged in a uh, conflict with another group. And I think it's important to recognize that one of the sort of fundamental problems of group conflict is, is what can be called the problem of coordination, that when you are in a conflict, uh, one of the key features that determines your uh, success uh, or your likelihood of prevailing in the conflict is how well organized the group is. Uh, Conflict is basically an arms race of coordination. The better coordinated, the more uh, solidarity you have, the the more you will are likely to prevail. And and therefore, when we become engaged in conflict, we are trying to achieve coordination within the group in multiple different ways. Uh, one, one of the ways which I think we will be discussing on a, on a future podcast is the sharing of rumors and misinformation and conspiracy theories. But another way in which we try to achieve coordination is by promoting particular leaders. Leaders emerged over evolutionary history in part as a solution to the coordination problem, getting the group to act in a coordinated fashion. And what, what we need when we are in an in a intergroup conflict there, we need a leader who is uh, basically a dominant individual, who is ready to punish uh, shirkers who are not contributing to the collective good of, of collective aggression, uh, and one who's sort of willing to lead the way. And, and I think this is what Donald Trump exploits, uh, that he's trying to position himself as the leader for individuals who believe that they are locked in intergroup conflict. 
So I think one of his, uh, he had an Instagram post, uh, I think it, in, in 2016 under the, the presidential election back then, where he said, uh, the world is a dangerous place and you need a strong leader, which is, is sort of classic. Classic. A classic. It's, it's an uncanny insight into exactly what he appeals to. Um, so, so, oh, sorry. No, but I mean, but what's that so far so good, but, but what you've said so far that applies to leaders in general, um, you know, all leaders coordinate groups and to some extent, uh, you know, pose and promise to deal with external threats. So what's unusual, sort of what's unusual about Trump? So the idea is that uh, coordination becomes so much more important in intergroup conflict. So you really need to be well coordinated. And that means that you are willing to accept leaders that are creating coordination to the extent to which they are exploiting individual members simply because it is so important. Like in, if, if for another collective action problem, let's say that you need to build a hut or something like that, then you need to meet some kind of absolute threshold uh, of coordination. But in intergroup conflict, the, the target is always relative to the other group. So, so this... I get sorry. I don't mean to. Well, I do mean to interrupt you. So, so I'm just going to press you a bit. So, for, like for example, you know, Churchill faced a very severe external threat, but he wasn't. Uh, you know, he didn't share many features with Trump. So, what's? How do you know? What I mean, what's the? What's the special source when we comes when it gets to Trump? Well, I, I think uh, that there are perhaps similarities between Churchill and Trump mm -hmm. after, after all. Controversial. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not so sure. Like he was, after all, the British bulldog. Uh, and I, I think that they appeal to some of the same kinds of, of uh, instincts, whereas things might have uh, gone... Uh, further with Donald Trump than with uh, with Churchill, but I think that they both appeal uh, to a desire for a strong leader in times of conflict. Also, one one of the interesting things about interesting things about Churchill was that uh, he was kicked out of office uh, or mm. voted out of office just after the mm. um, uh, the end of the Second World War. So when before when, before the end before the end yeah. I think it was, I think it, I forget, I think it was after VE Day, but before VJ Day. Uh, so pretty, uh, pretty, pretty, pretty cold. Yeah, exactly. But, but it, it sort of shows this extreme flexibility that people have in their preferences for leaders, that it is a particular kind of leader you want when you are in a conflict situation. And when the conflict is going down, then you shift your uh, your preferences uh, towards another kind of, uh, of leader. So even though I don't, want to offend uh, the Brits about making too strong comparisons between uh, Donald Trump and, and Churchill, then I, I do think that there are some, some similarities. And basically, the, the point is that, um, that, that you are willing to accept a leader who is kind of exploitive and who is kind of dominant in exchange for uh, success in intergroup conflict. Um, yeah, just just a sidebar on Ch on Churchill, seeing as somewhat I, I brought him up. Um, 
it is a complete puzzle to be how and why he got kicked out. And we'll, maybe we'll come back to that. My working hypothesis is that he was a bit of a wild card, um, but he was the wild card we needed at that time. So we we bet on him, as it were. But once the th- once the threat receded and the uh, you know our appetite for risk receded, he 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 carried on being a wild card, but he became a bit more of a liability, and various other things happened, and he was uh, booted out. But yeah. Anyway, back to Trump. Yeah, so I think the what what so if if I'm if I'm sort of correct that he appeals to uh, people who feel that they are engaged in in um, intergroup uh, aggression, then first of all, it suggests that there's a lot of Americans who do feel that they are threatened uh, by other groups, and I. I do think that is the case. And I think that is why Donald Trump appeals to a particular segment. Um, more which, which groups Which groups do they feel they're threatened by? Other groups of Americans or? So I, I think both non-Americans and uh, other Americans. Uh, so there's some research suggesting that uh, sentiments that you are marginalized and that you are lacking social status it's a core driver or was a core driver of Trump support uh, in, uh, in 2016. So there is certainly some division internal uh, to United States, um, also related to identity politics that some uh, white uh, working uh, males feel that they are uh, being threatened by minority groups, uh, the educated groups, females, and so on. But in addition to that, there is the the whole uh, issue of globalization. And we can also see here during the uh, corona pandemic how it is that Trump is constantly referring to China as the uh, as the one uh, behind it all. So so there are like external group, including immigrants. Uh, but there's also certainly groups internally to the United States, in my view. So it's like people who resent the elites for looking down on them, people who resent minorities for, uh, I don't know, catching up with them or um, having having uh, been given advantages, and people who resent... I'm not sure people are tuned in enough to sort of resent changes in global power dynamics but they can certainly generally resent foreigners and um the the bad things they're alleged to have done yeah exactly uh and and i think that is so if if that analysis is is just sort of halfway through then then it suggests that the right way to think about donald trump is not so much or not just as a problem in itself, but rather as a symptom of a uh, some deeper uh, processes in U.S. society, and this also means that independently of what will happen at the coming election, then getting Trump out of office won't really solve much. Uh-huh. So you think there's going to be if the if the situation if the underlying problem continues underlying situation then there'll just be there'll be another another trump 
Yeah, exactly. So I, I think in many ways, uh, uh, the profession of social scientists have failed in understanding what goes on in, in the United States uh, and many Western democracies uh, currently uh, in, in the sense that, that we have focused on surface factors, say, well, it's, it's also Fox News. Uh, they are the cause of it all. Then it was Facebook's fault, everything. And now, now it's Donald Trump's fault. But, but in reality, I think that there are some deeper structural processes going on that are creating all these uh, symptoms. And until we figure out what the root cause is, then symptoms will appear and reappear. Uh, what is the, but the okay? But the, what do you think the root cause is then? This is this could be a whole another podcast. Yeah, no, that's true. Uh, so I don't know. Uh, I think uh, some work by uh, Peter Churchin, an American uh, mathematician, uh, su- suggests that the, the best bet uh, is uh, increasing inequality, which is happening uh, all across OECD countries, and that uh, political instability is, is, is fundamentally being driven by uh, inequality. And, and I think that the jury is still out on, on whether that is in fact the case, but I think just moving down to this sort of deeper structural level uh, and making analysis at that level is important. So he had a paper, didn't he, or an essay or something about predicting a big upheaval in 2020 or about now. I, I remember seeing it doing, doing the rounds on Twitter a few. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Probably, it's probably, and... a few days, probably a few days ago, it feels like years, but... Yes, but it, it, it's absolutely true. And uh, I think the, the worst part uh, of, of that uh, research is that it suggests that uh, things will first uh, uh, reach uh, the maximum uh, in 2025. So oh. th- we're still in the calm uh, phase. The calm before the storm. Yeah. So, but but that's... That's basically sort of my my understanding of of Trump from from this political perspective. Um, very good, and I just want to give another example of of uh, the atavism. So one of the first things he did, which sort of made me prick up my ears, was um, sort of promised, uh, probably uh, spearheaded by Ivanka, was to spearhead a sort of task force into looking at sex trafficking and. Uh, and all that goes with it. And I remember thinking at the time, and I think I tweeted something about, well, hang on, is this how, that's obviously that's bad. That's a bad thing. Um, but how prevalent is this? Is this really, uh, you know, is there a, um, I was about to say an epidemic of sex trafficking, but is there a, is this a big thing? Um, and I, I'm no expert on it, but you know, it only took a little bit of Googling to find, you know, half a dozen Newspaper reports in reputable, in reputable places saying it, it really it really wasn't a big problem. Obviously, there's there's some cases, but um, and I forget the numbers, but there's relatively few cases, and most of the time it's um, uh, it, it's been blown out of all proportion. Is the was the the general gist? But I remember thinking, but this is a really this is a kind of you know a, a sort of ancient blood libel. You know, they're they're stealing. You know, they're stealing our women. Our, our women are being smuggled away to do this, or women in general are being smuggled one way or another. Um, obviously, it happens and it's bad. But it was made out to be this vast 
uh, well, you know, there's now people who believe it is this vast underground conspiracy of tons of it, of tons and tons of it going on, um, such that it would be the priority of the government to solve it. Um, and I'll have to check back into what happened to Ivanka's sex trafficking task force. But if these newspaper reports were correct, there wasn't much of a problem to solve in the first place. So they wouldn't have achieved very much uh, through the task force. I think I seem to remember it was things like often immigration officers would portray something as, um, for example, they might they might bu um, bust a brothel. Mm as it were, and then subsequently portray the people there as having been, as, as slaves, as having been trafficked. Although that wasn't necessarily what the people working there said, but it was, it was a way of, you know, of, a, of a, a bureaucracy making their problem, you know, inflating the size of a, of a problem in order to inflate their role in solving it. it. You know, there was a lot of that going on. So, but anyway, the, so that just seemed like another example of him tapping into this some kind of sort of ancient primordial fear that you know they're coming and stealing our women. Um, as an, and I'm sure you know there's and there's uh, others. Yeah, and and I think I, I, I think this really holds the key to Trump's popularity because some of the some of the things that looks weird. Uh, about Trump suddenly makes a lot of sense uh, from from this perspective because basically let let's say that you are a person looking for a dominant leader to facilitate coordination uh, and aggression, then you would like a leader who shows that he does not care about any norms. Uh, you would like a leader who is uh, so confident and so dominant that he's willing to straight up lie about uh, how many people attended uh, his uh, uh, when he was um, um, inaugurated. Yes, that's the word I was uh, looking for. Thank you, Oliver. Um, so basically, all all the features that makes people who do not have this mindset. Uh, sort of think, why the hell would anyone vote for this guy are exactly the features that makes him attractive to individuals who have this mindset. Yeah, because he, so he, he has the power to break. He, he's, uh, he, by breaking the rules, he shows how powerful he is and, and power's a good thing. Um, it also occurs to me that similarly, by appealing to these, uh, I was about to say, Bayesian priors then, I don't even know what that means. <laughs> um, but by appealing to these, these instincts, well, that's one of the ways he gets around not having any evidence for it because he appeals to things that people sort of have an expectation of and they might, you know, in the, in the deepest, darkest recesses of their mind and they might not have thought about it otherwise. But it's like, oh yeah, that's the kind of thing that happens. Or, you know, the... Um, there's always some, there's always some freeloaders somewhere so that you can always, if you make a case that someone's freeloading on somebody else or that, you know, there's a, there's welfare scroungers or there's whatever, um, it, you know, exactly what proportion of uh, how big a problem it is, is, is a, 
you know, that's, that's for nerds to worry about, but that there is, a, it's a, a problem. There's a, that shaped, the freeloader shaped problem in society is something that people can latch onto straight away. Or the idea that there are out groups or other countries or whatever that don't have our best interests at heart and who pose a, pose a threat. The details are for, you know, uh, internet policy, international policy wants to fret about but the basic idea that that's that's a possibility everyone's on that say you know everyone's halfway there already without there being any um evidence uh, and, and so on you know across the board and uh and and by that oliver i i think we're moving uh from the territory of what you can call uh, politics into the territory of of morality and that is one of the things you know a lot about the kinds of moral instincts that people have and and how that influence other beliefs and other behaviors and from from what you're saying uh, then would that mean that uh, often donald trump is perhaps being portrayed as one who is not so concerned with morality but but what you're saying is that that's not the case. He is, in fact, appealing to a large number of moral instincts. I, th I think he definitely is. So, I mean, a very crude way of putting it is that we, we people, not or weird people or whatever, you know, we typically think about morality as being nice to each other, about being, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the liberal idea of. Uh, morality is about being fair and kind and caring and um, pleasant and all the rest of it. And those are obviously very uh, important parts of morality. But there are there are other moral instincts that uh, the 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 stand. I'm you know I'm mostly liberal myself, so I'm not. This isn't a this isn't a ding on liberals. But there's there are other aspects of morality that liberals are not necessarily tuned into and they don't understand and they misinterpret. And one of them is, to sort of echo what you said about being dominant, one of them is about, um, is, about is, is what I call hawkish heroism. It's about displaying, displaying your power, about demonstrating your dominance, about giving off these signals that you're formidable and indomitable uh, and, uh, and, and all the rest of it. And these, another way to put it, so these are, these have sort of, good and bad or, or sort of better and worse faces. So it can be through people can, people can show off their power by being the biggest bully uh, in the room and, you know, smashing up the most things and making the most noise, uh, or they can show off their power by being, being the most helpful, by being, being the most heroic, by being the most courageous or brave or generous. And certainly, and Trump does his best to display all of those things as being right right from the sort of the basic chimpanzee level um being being strong and fit and recovering from uh, infections maybe and uh being energetic and working working hard and um, pretending to be generous and uh has he pretended to be brave i suppose he has in some ways I mean, generally, oh, making sacrifice, you know, uh, shouldering the, the great burdens of state and and sacrificing, supposedly sacrificing his business interests. You know, obviously all of this comes with a, a pinch of salt, but, you know, this, we're talking about his um, uh, 
the content of his PR, not necessarily whether it's, whether it's true. Um, anyway, so so he, he I th- I think he's like a, he's a super normal stimulus when it comes to that. He he amps that up to eleven at the expense of all the other um, moral instincts. He he appeals to some of the other ones too, like um, like group loyalty and things like that. Um, but he really amps up this uh, these these cues of formidability and these the 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 point is that these are traits that induce respect in others that's what they're for um and respect is a moral emotion um uh, you know heroism generosity courage bravery we can see that those are those are morally good traits, but the flip side is they induce other de- deference in others, obedience in others, uh, respect from others, and a sense among those the, that let's call them followers that this is someone who ought to be who, who ought to be respected, who ought to be obeyed, um, who we ought to fall in line behind, because going back to these you know these instincts in the basement. If, if powerful people are not respected, if dominance are not um, submitted to, then, then bad things will happen. Then society will, uh, chaos will reign. Thing, you know, the sky will fall in. Something bad will happen. I can't, uh, people might not be able to articulate it, but it's a kind of, uh, you know, evolve natural law that if powerful people are not recognized as such, stuff will be bad for everybody. Now, especially when, to sort of to dovetail it with what you're saying, especially when there are um, threats abroad, uh, there's, you know, even more so. But even in, as it were, in the absence of those external threats, there is, there is this intuition that powerful people should be respected. And if they're not, then things go wrong. So I just think he he just borrow he just he just hits that button all the time all the time all the time and as we've seen there's a lots of people who who respond in a very predictable way. So that that makes a lot of sense uh, to me. Um, but I, I would like to ask you, sort of going back to one of the first things you said in the, in this regard, uh, was that there are moral values or moral instincts that conservatives have or recognize that liberals might not. And would would you think that uh, a Trump figure could emerge on on the left as well? Or is this something that uniquely appeals to the kinds of moral values that you have at the right or the conservative side of the spectrum? Yeah, that I don't know. That's an interesting question. I mean, obviously, there are there have been left wing dictators, uh, obviously, and so yeah, so that so I don't think the issue is is left versus right, but I think it's probably more individual versus collective, and you can have different flavors of collectivism, but in in order to collect the collective or you know assemble them behind you underneath you you have to you have to give off these these cues um 
Yeah, uh, I mean, so the, I mean, this, the standard view in uh, with Jonathan Haidt's work on moral foundations is that lib liberals care about care and fairness, and actually conservatives do too, but only conservatives care about group loyalty and deference to authority and kind of religious purity. And uh, that's a that's a subject for an, for another podcast. Generally, and that that view's been um, has pros and cons, and uh, has been empirically finessed, shall we say? Um, but generally speaking, the the way I think about it is, which is kind of not related to that, is that um, the difference between liberals and conservatives is that to put it this way that conservatives have relationship have more relationships that they want to conserve they are embedded in 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 families in in communities sometimes religious communities um they feel more attached to their, to, to place and location and country um so so they have they have established relationships that they want to conserve and protect Whereas liberals are liberated from those relationships. They are, as it were, young, free and single. They have yet to um, establish those relationships. They are on the lookout. They, they are more open to new relationships. They're on the lookout for, um, for new friends, new collaborators. They have yet to find their, their perfect partner and settle down and have a family. So they are relatively free of those commitments, constraints, whatever you want to call them. Or, I mean, it's better to say it's the other way around. The, the people who have, the people who are embedded in these relationships conserve them. And the people who are not embedded in those relationships are sort of on the lookout, uh, value them less or are on the lookout for them. Um, and, and, what, and what we tend to find in, in other work is that they, that um, conservatives are, uh, score higher on on various measures of morality, um, except for impartial fairness. So, whereas the liberals tend to see and treat everybody equally, conservatives don't because people are not equal to them. Their other people, their family is more important to them than other people's families. Their group is more important to them than other people's groups. Um, as will be the case when the liberals have uh, the uh, the youngsters have um, families and settle down and join the the bowling club and whatever. Um, so certainly, to go back to your question, um, certainly left-wing authoritarians can, that, well, that, though they are, there's some homework for us. So um, is it the case that left-wing authoritarians hit those same buttons, appeal to those same uh, intuitions about the importance of relationships um, as right-wing ones do? And is that something they have in common? That would be interesting to investigate for, for sure uh and and another 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 study uh, to do uh would be to look at the relationship between uh political ideology and um constructs related to uh, this idea of relational mobility that you're talking about as far as i know mm -hmm. there is or there is uh a, a type of measure that directly taps into to that, like how easily you can um, 
establish new relationships. And, and I completely agree with you that, that there might be some important, as of yet, uh, empirically unexplored differences between liberals and, and conservatives in, in that regard. I think the way that uh, standard, um, the sort of standard explanation uh, today would be that liberals are higher in openness to new experiences, but, but, but that might cover some much more specific things about the way they understand social relationships. And But, this, but they, um, well, again, this is for, I'm glad to see we've got a few future podcasts lined up. Um, but do, do liberal, so liberals are more open to experience, but do they, do they close down when they, I mean, do they stay open till, you know, the day they die or do they, do they, do they close sounds like a bad thing. Do they settle down as it were? I think that's uh, as far as I remember the, uh, uh, the 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 current research. But uh, the in, anyone who listens should be very welcome to send us mm. send us yes. the, the most updated Co- to, uh, and correct so. all of our mistakes. Yeah, but I I, I do think that there's evidence uh, showing that that people do turn turn more conservative uh, with uh, with age. Uh, but but I think this this speaks to a, a general point that there's a lot of work to be done on uh, life history and political ideology, how your politics changes as a consequence of the particular life phase you are in, uh, whether you are married, whether you get children and, and, and so on. Right, right now, there's just the, uh, well, there's some research on this, but, but a lot of it is simply these sort of, uh, stereotypes about young people being liberal, older being being conservative, but but most likely we could get a much firmer grasp uh, on that. But it but it's not like the it's not sort of the the age. It's not just like a fine wine changing into something else. It it the, the age is a proxy for accumulating these relationships. Yeah. Perhaps. Yeah. I, uh, that that would be our hypothesis, right? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, I, I read someone someone the other day saying that the the mo- most of the uh, most liberal political philosophy you know enlightenment liberal philosophy was was written by bachelors basically male bachelors who who were unencumbered by uh, or did not enjoy the benefits of um, uh, family and other relationships. Um, I'd be interested to see a proper, it was fairly anecdotal. I'd like to see a proper study of that. Similarly, anecdotally, I've often thought that most traditional moral philosophy was written by um, cowardly bachelors in living uh, a rarefied existence in Oxbridge colleges. And um, it, that would be, there's another, there's another study for, for someone to do the, the, the biographies of moral and political philosophers. Um, so, uh, so uh, yeah. So I think that we're we're on a similar page when it comes to Donald Trump and his ilk tapping into these deep-seated moral and political instincts. Um, 
and like you say, the, um, the situations that, that make those particularly ripe are going to continue, uh, probably going to continue after Donald Trump, and we'll see what happens. Um, as, as he always says, in a, in a couple of weeks, in two weeks, I'll have my paper submitted in next couple of weeks. Um, but on a shorter time frame, so what do you think? So we're, this is, today is the 9th of October. We are, what, what, three or four weeks away from the US 2020 presidential election. Um, so in the short term, what do you think is going to happen uh, with the election? So if we can trust the polls, then Trump will lose. Uh, and Do you I trust the polls? If, if you do not trust the polls, what can you trust, Oliver? Um, <laughs> I don't know whether I trust the polls. I, 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 I think we might be in a situation uh, like, like last time where the, the polls uh, are wrong, uh, although they were right uh, with regards to the, the popular vote uh, in 2016. So um, what was it last time? She was, she was like two or three points ahead or something yeah. in the polls. Yeah. And she, and she was two or three points ahead in the, in the popular vote. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I think the, his handling of the corona crisis, uh, the pandemic situation, uh, does not uh, suggest that uh, he has a high likelihood of being elected, the economic situation uh, as well. Um, so I, I do think that we will end up in a situation where uh, Joe Biden will... Uh, will take the presidency. Uh, as I said, I don't think that that will solve much uh, in terms of the problems the United States are facing because the problems are at a deeper structural level. Uh, I think that we might see some uh, really horrific uh, events of uh, violence uh in 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 relation uh to uh to the election we know from uh unstable societies that there is often uh violence uh around election because that is sort of again coming back to the notion of coordination everyone's attention is uh, towards uh, politics at that time and and it is where power is uh, is being distributed uh, and we have seen a mobilization of uh, violent groups on both the left and the right uh, over uh, over the last few months. So I think that there will be some uh, small scale eruptions of uh, mm. of violence, and uh, but but hopefully that will be it. Yeah, I, 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 on the on the violent side, I, I can't tell like. I agree with you about this, the small, the local level eruptions. And, um, but I can't tell whether the sort of the more doom laden predictions of, you know, uh, system, systemic civil unrest are just another part of the, you know, the Wizard of Oz show. Is it just another part of his trying to transmit uh, how awesomely powerful he is and he could, you know, he could, he could, bring down, you know, rain havoc on America if he doesn't get his own way. Um, I, I very much hope that where, 
assuming he is booted out, that it, he just sort of disappears in a puff of smoke. I mean, he's, you know, he's going to go, he's going to go down fighting and he's going to shout a lot, but once he's not, well, I get, and I guess he will still be in the Oval Office for a few months, but um, once it's clear it's over, I just wonder how quickly this thing, things could, things will dissipate and change. This isn't, a, this isn't a brilliant analogy, but I remember when Sarah Palin was, in the running for the being vice president. She was obviously all over the airwaves all the time and for a little bit after she lost. And I remember thinking, oh my God, this we're gonna have to listen to this woman all the time talking this nonsense or, you know, that she's now a feature of the, of the firmament. firmament. She's gonna be there forever. And then she just sort of, just, you know, just the volumes went down and then, you know, where, where is she now? Um, and I, comfort myself in thinking that Trump's going to be a bit like that, that someone who is uh, all consuming of our attention right now can and possibly will end up wherever Sarah Palin has, has ended up and people just can, can tune them out without, uh, without consequence. I, I, I do uh, sort of share that uh, analysis and I, I, I think that it is, um, it, it seems to be the case that Trump is a self-interested uh, person. And I think in many ways, uh, uh, a self-interested person is uh, more easy to deal with than a complete uh, maniac in, in the sense that if, if he cares about getting money uh, for himself, then, then that means that there are limits to the amount of craziness he will uh, do even when he loses uh, the election because he is uh, basically just uh, he's dependent on a well-functioning capitalist system uh, and, and therefore I think that there are uh, that a likely scenario is exactly as you are describing that he basically just goes back earning some money yeah I mean and I'm sure he'll be you know he might be on a cable he'll have his own cable news show or whatever okay, uh, talk radio talk radio show somewhere it'll be the new Rush Limbaugh maybe um so he'll be ranting and raving somewhere and he'll have a you know he's obviously got a loyal following but it'll just he'll just be ranting and raving in his own little uh little swamp somewhere with other people don't you can't not his rantings will be inconsequential in a way that they're not inconsequential now uh i I, yeah i i I hope you're you're right but still uh, then uh there will be another trump well, that's a, that's a very. De- I don't want to end on a depressing thought. Um, let me end on a slightly less depressing thought. So, just to go back to what I think will happen, um, I bet a uh, hundred dollars or so on the wrong Democratic nominee uh, six months or so ago, and I think my judgment was correct. Unfortunately, the the Democratic uh, selectors didn't didn't ask me about it, so they they chose. They didn't choose the person I would have chosen. However, um, in retrospect, 
Biden was just chugging along ahead of the poll, ahead of the polls the uh, the whole time from the from the as soon as he announced to as soon as he got the nomination he I, I think it was the case that he was he always had a steady lead above uh, above everyone else and different people came and went and nibbled at his heels and fell back and this person came and went but he was just just kept on trucking stayed just stayed at the top of the game the, the whole time and and you know won in eventually won fairly comfortably and. I'm kind of, whereas before I thought it was all to play for and this, his steady lead was illusory. And I, now I, now it's the same situation. He's been, he's just been trucking along and people like you and me who are interested in politics, following the, the horse race and all the ins and outs. And this person said that getting obsessed with all the, all the, uh, the details, he's just been, trucking along you know more or less, I was looking at it this morning on the 538 blog he's been five to ten points ahead for the last what six months uh, so I'm kind of putting my trust in inertia at the very least and he's just going to carry on keep on trucking and uh, all of the, to the point where like sort of on a this is a hope rather than a prediction to the point where I mean, if that if he if he carries on like that, and there's no reason to think he won't, then it'll just be a done deal. Uh, he, you know, he'll he'll win handily. Trump c- can fulminate all he likes, but he, he won't be within stealing distance of the election. And then the whole thing will just fold like a house of cards, and we'll all hold our breath till January, and hopefully emerge into the fresh air. Well, and, uh, oh, and and more specifically, um, I do like to bet on elections, and I think I've, I think I haven't got the numbers in front of me, but I think I've put money on Trump getting. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna say two hundred uh, under two hundred and six. I think was the was the band, so around about two hundred uh, elect- electoral votes. So if that happens and a few states come my way, uh, I'll I'll buy you a drink. I, I I will look forward uh, to that, Oliver. Okay, very good. Well, I think it's impossible to get to the the bottom of the barrel of this thing called Trump, but I think we've scooped out a fair amount so far. It's probably no doubt something we will turn to in future podcasts. So, thanks for coming, Michael. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next time.